All right, let's pray. Father, thankful for our Savior, thankful that our first look upon Him uh, caused us to be justified, and now we continue to look on Him in order that we are sanctified, and one day we will be glorified, and we pray that You would continue to change us into the image of Your Son, our Savior, and do that even in this class as we think about uh, the truth of Your Word and how You're working in all the details of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes. We're uh, starting this morning a new series in our classes from um, classes on spiritual success. This class is called "Making Wise Choices," and uh, want to answer questions that certainly we've all asked at times. What What is God's plan for my life? Maybe some other variation of the question you've asked, like, how can I tell when God is leading me? How does God speak to me? Um, what if I miss God's will? I mean, I've only got one chance at this life, one opportunity to get it right, so how can I be sure that I'm doing what God really wants me to do? Um, so today we'll look at the doctrine of the providence of God, which is foundational for... Um, understanding our understanding of the smallest details in life because if we fail to understand that God is providentially working over all things then we won't properly see how God's will plays into our uh, circumstances our life so if you look on the back of your handout you see that kind of the plan for the next several weeks that I'm here um, I'll be gone next week, but then after that, we'll pick back up on week two. Fear not, you're worth more more than many sparrows. So we'll talk about the fact that that um, God has a will for your life, and I know what it is, and hopefully you do as well. And I can tell you what it is right now. We'll dig into it more next time. But God's will is that you're united to Christ in perfect holiness and entirely free from the cor- corruption of sin, and that that would be the case for all of eternity. That, that you're not uh, um, interrupted by unholiness or, or corruption in any way, joining into the, uh, spending time in the very presence of God. That's God's will for, for our lives. Um, in week three, we'll, we'll ask how God speaks to us in order to lead us. And the answer to that question is going to be that God speaks by His Spirit, through His Word, and then um, that'll lay the foundation for us to finally get to where probably we're thinking most most uh, clearly what what is at the center of God's will, getting to know God's will. That'll be weeks four and five. And then in week six, we'll look at an example of what it looks like to to live in God's will. How about how about a, an example that's not clear in Scripture? Okay, I know it's God's will for me not to commit immorality, right? I mean that's First Thessalonians four three. I know that's God's will, but what about, you know, should I take this job? Should I move to this place? Should I do this? And we'll, we'll kind of have a, um, a couple examples, at least one example. If we have time, we'll, we'll do another example. But, but how understanding God's will works uh, when, when it's not clear in Scripture. And then finally in week seven, we'll, we'll uh, hopefully summarize or bring things together looking at Psalm 1 about the center of God's will.
today we want to do a, an overview of Ecclesiastes to to um, kind of see how God is providentially working, that everything that happens in life matters to God. Every decision that, that takes place is important um, because... Oh, yeah, there's a signed-up sheet being handed around. If you could help, that would be great. Because what we do know is that if the rapture doesn't happen in our lifetime, every single one of us will do what every single other person that's ever lived, um, and that is we will die, uh, save two people. But, but we will die. And um, so if we think about that, if we're all going to die, then what does it really matter what we do along the way? I mean, why does it really matter what I do in life? Listen to uh, James Petty in his book called Step by Step. He says, The physical facts of the situation are not encouraging. Man seems very insignificant. The universe appears at present to be at least 12 billion light years across. Astronomers have gotten glimpses of what they think are galaxies 90% of the way across that expanse, and yet only 10% of that matter is visible across that distance. The universe is so vast that there is an entire galaxy for every grain of sand on the Earth. One galaxy for every grain of sand. Each galaxy contains millions of stars. And then, in addition to the universe that is, that is, um, is tangible or, or knowable, we have this unseen realm of heavens created outside of time and space where untold myriads of angels and other created beings dwell. And against that backdrop, how huge our universe is. One person's decision about a, a mother's living situation, a job, a school, or a mate may seem incredibly insignificant outside the tiny temporary sphere of our self-centered existence. I mean, why, he goes on to say, why would God be concerned with such fleeting details anyway? Why would it matter at all since everyone and everything ends up dead? I mean, are we as Christians living in denial, ignoring all the evidence for the insignificance of our decisions? Are we making a mountain out of what should be a, mo a molehill? Perhaps a good label for our desires would be a beautiful illusion. Well, today we're going to see that the book of Ecclesiastes is actually not a book that's pessimistic in nature like many readers think it is. In fact, it teaches that all of life, down to the very details of how potatoes grow, has great meaning, has great value, and great consequence. Everything that exists, everything that occurs in the created order has great meaning and value and purpose because it has been ordained, providentially ruled, and set up, orchestrated by a sovereign creator who never does anything in vain. And so here's the message of Ecclesiastes, and it's really right there at the top of your handout. Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful. That's the theme of the book. Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful. The reason we can say that is because God sovereignly orchestrates all that happen. He, he does have a plan for your life. Your, your actions, how you choose to do things, does have significance because everything's been ordained by the Sovereign Creator. 
the problem is that many have misconceptions about this first premise that we're starting with, that God is sovereign over all the affairs of His creation. And so this leads us to some faulty assumptions. This leads us to asking the wrong questions about what is important about my decision-making process. And so I think this class is important. This, this study of Ecclesiastes is important to lay the foundation so that when we get to the question of, okay, so now which job should I choose? Both are, both are we could say, amoral, right? Neither one of them would be a violation of, of a command in Scripture for me to take this job or to live in this house or this house. And so before we can get there, though, we need to start with this foundation that, that God is sovereign over all things. So let's take a look at this book here starting in chapter 1 verse 1 to order in order to understand it first we need to understand the the author's flow of thought so we're going to kind of just do a brief survey through the book and what we need to understand at the outset is this is not a collection of random proverbs okay like the book of proverbs is more that way this is not that this is written by one author written at one point in time not many authors he uh, you can see some of his consistency if you look at chapter 1, verse 2, and then chapter 12, verse 8. We're not going to do that right now. Um, but, but just so you know, this is one author, and he's got one message. So we want to try to see what his message is. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Okay, so you might already know who the author is, but, but there's only one person who was the son of David, verse 1, and who reigned over all of Jerusalem. Who was that? Solomon. Solomon. So, very likely, the author of this book is that same man who you know, had all this power and fame and riches and lands and wives. And so, here we have someone who has kind of experienced life too, you know, in terms of, of a secular mindset. He's experienced life to the fullest. He's had it all. He's had the money. He's had the power. He's had the fame. And so, so that helps us because it's not just some you know, loser on the street who's just saying, ah, oh, you know, all those riches and things, all that power, that's not all it's cracked up to be. Someone who's never experienced it. It's someone who actually has experienced all those things. And he's saying, you know what? Um, uh, well, we'll see what he's saying here. First, in verses 2 through 11, we, we get the scene set for us, and um, he starts his argument here. And basically, what he starts with is truths that anyone can see. And we're, we're going to, as we're reading through, we're like, yes, this, this, is, this makes a lot of sense. And notice how he begins in verse 2 Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So it's not just vain. It's just one vanity or a vanity it's the vanity of all vanities and he's going to argue that basically all these things that he's experienced in life are that or as my um, Old Testament professor translated it frustratingly enigmatic frustratingly enigmatic all is frustratingly enigmatic not not as memorable or easy to say so um, vanity works much better. The idea there is something that's fleeting, something that's little of, uh, or no substance. It's, it's the same word that's used in the Old Testament for a vapor or a breath. right? There's something that appears for a little while and is gone. 
has little significance along the way. It's, it's a word that's also used by the prophets to speak of the idols. They are vain. They are worthless. They have no value. They're insignificant. That's what the preacher says about life, right? He says, all is vanity. That it is the most vain thing, right? The vanity of all vanities. I mean, what profit, what gain, what in turn, uh, what return, what increase? What advantage does man have? Verse 3, right? What, what advantage does man has, have in all his work which he does under the sun? And Solomon's answer in verse 2 is, it's all vanity. It's pointless. So really, as we think about decision-making, what paths in life we should go down, I mean, who cares? It's all vain anyway. So let's not waste our mental energy on on vain and pointless pursuits when it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the idea that he's saying that as we go through life, let's let's just be honest. And in verse 4, four through 10, he says, all the created order continues to function and, and run just as it ever has, but each generation of man comes and goes. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, is there anything of which one might say, see, this it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. So really, who remembers what happens? I mean, a generation comes, generation goes. You know, you have water that flows into the river and then it flows back out again. It just kind of goes through this big cycle. And such is life. Things come, things go, people come, people go. There's nothing new under the sun. If anyone says it's new, it's already been here. Something's already been just like that before. The created order is really just a circular, a, a circular motion or a circular effect that, that keeps going on. But as the uh, all that exists kind of continues to, to go on and continue, notice that verse 11 the generations of men do not. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Verse 4 says that one generation passes away and another generation comes and, and who really remembers them? I mean, so what's the point of life? Who cares who, what we do in life if we're just going to die and no one's going to remember us? I mean, there are a few people in life who will be remembered maybe a decade from now or a century from now. But think back to the 500s. Can you think of one person who existed during the 500s A.D.? I mean, it's a whole, it's 100 years. Anybody in the whole world that you can remember during the 500s? I mean, I can't. And so what really is the purpose of all this? 
I mean, does it really make a difference what I do since we're all going to be dead? Well, hold that thought because Solomon's not going to end there. And thank God he doesn't. In chapter 1, verse 12, he continues. And he speaks to his qualifications to address these issues and what he's found in life. Look at verse 13. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So here he describes what this vanity looks like again. But this time he calls it a striving after the wind. A striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to grab hold of the wind as it blew past? I mean, were you able to hold it or do anything with it? Other translations have chasing or or grasping after the wind. The idea is to try to grab something that is inherently passing away, something that's fleeting. Trying to hold on to something that, that is impossible to hold on to. I mean, trying to capture the wind is vain, and that's what Solomon is saying is life is like. Life is fleeting, it's passing away, it's blowing by. There's no way to catch it and hold it and make it last. And Solomon says, now that I've seen all this vanity everywhere, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recap all the various places that I've looked to find meaning and significance. So verse 16, he said to himself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized that this is also a striving after wind because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Here he tries the, the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Maybe that's where he can find meaning in life. Many of us agonize over knowledge and meaning and education kind of get worried about which school we're going to go to and and certainly it's not an unimportant decision but Solomon here affirms that the whole pursuit of wisdom is just another form of vanity it's a chasing after the wind regardless of of where or how that education is pursued and so I mean he's saying I I had it I mean he I was the wisest person on the earth and 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 yet more wisdom brought more grief and really all that chasing after wisdom was was vanity. It makes no difference in the end. I mean, who cares what school we go to? Who cares how much education we have? Well, he, he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, and said, what about pleasure? Maybe that's where the answer to life is. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So first I'll test you with knowledge, now I'm going to test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility, vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my mind with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the sun for for the few years of their lives. 
What about hedonism? What about the pursuit of pleasure? I mean, if life is short, then, then what if I just live it up and, and just pursue and, and enjoy all my pleasures? And he tried that. What did he find? Right? It's madness. It's futility. He tries wine. Maybe an outside stimulant will help. Anything that, that can appear to be worthwhile, it's all vanity, he says. Then in verses 4 through 11, he tries to find meaning in, in his work. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens. Verse 6, I made ponds. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. Verse 8, I collected for myself silver and gold. Verse 9, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me. Verse 10, all that my desires, my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Verse 11, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. I was striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. I mean, do we not know people or have been people who tried to find our meaning in life through our work, our occupation? How common is it in this country to make idols out of our jobs? I mean, consider the decision-making process then in light of this. I mean, does it really matter? Does it really make any difference what kind of job we have? Solomon said, in concerning all my work, when I thought back on it, it was all just vanity. Now, let's think about that for a moment because what, was, what kind of jobs did Solomon have? I mean, what did he do for a living? Did he clean streets? I mean, what did he do? He was the king. So what kind of responsibilities did he have as a king? Okay, so he had to rule and make laws. He had to, ju- he had to be the judge. At that time, that was, he was both king and judge. He, he worked to unite the kingdom. He expanded the borders, right? And he did it without battles. He did it by marrying these women and, and coming into good graces with their fathers who were kings of other places. And he, of course, he had all these people under him that he had to, to rule and care for. He built fleets of ships. He established peace with, with trade and, and he fortified cities with walls. He brought in great economic prosperity so that at one point the Scripture says that gold and silver were as common as stone during the time of Solomon. And he built up Jerusalem. He built the temple that his father David had dreamed of. And then he built cities simply to house his chariots and horses. I mean, how would you like that for a resume? Considering significance, I mean, that is a resume. And yet, he says, you know what? Great projects, great gardens, great servants, herds, flocks, all that. That's nice, but, but really, verse 11, it's just a vanity. It's a grasping after the wind. No profit at all. So if Solomon can't find satisfaction, if Solomon can't find meaning in his work, then where are we? I mean, how could we possibly find meaning in our work? 
And it seems like the application, if we just stopped right here, the application would be, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. It's all pointless. No matter how significant it might look on paper, no matter how significant it looks on your Facebook status, it doesn't really matter. And really, you know, obviously we have a bigger perspective and we're already starting to see where this is leading. And perhaps you already know what the point of Ecclesiastes is, so you know where this is going. But, but really, he's not wrong here, is he? And we can agree with him that, that those things don't have meaning in and of themselves. Verses 12 through 16 says that all of his work and worldly pursuits are vain. He turns again to consider wisdom. And, and look, I mean, it's true. Wisdom is better than foolishness. It's better than folly. That makes sense. So maybe we're getting similar. Maybe there's something there. But really, he says, in the end, the same thing that happens to the fool happens to the wise person. And what is it? We all die. So whether you lived your life foolishly or wisely, does it really matter at this point? And so apparently, if we think about it rationally, then we have to say that wisdom could even be vain. Verses 17 to 23, what's this reaction? What's Solomon's reaction to this endless quest? Where is meaning? Verse 17, he hated life. Verse 18, he hated his work. Verse 20, he began to despair. Verse 23, he saw his days as full of pain and grief with no rest, and he hated it because it was so vain, empty, meaningless, futile. And so I ask you again, what difference does it really make what we choose? What does it really matter what, how we use our life? Who cares? what decisions we make. Now, we need, to, we need to understand, we need to understand that great conflict that sets up the resolve that's coming. We need to understand that, that there is vanity in pursuing the, all those things. We need to follow Solomon's flow of thought in, in order for us to understand the point. He began by affirming that the created order continues forever while man goes on and on, that all the work that we do in our short lifespan means nothing since in the end he's just going to find himself in the grave just like any other person. And so nothing that we can do between birth and death has any lasting significance. It has no value. But now we have a transition in verses 24 through 26. He's going to lay out a solution or at least allude to a solution here to this apparent vanity that's, that is everywhere under the sun. And the reason we know that he's changed his tune is because of the words that he's used. Words like better and good and from the hand of God and enjoyment and good in his sight and good in God's sight. These are words on the, on the far other end, opposite end of the spectrum that we have been looking at. Saying it's all waste. There's no value. And now he's saying better, good, excellent in God's sight. It seems like finally Solomon has found something that might be of lasting significance. So here's where we want to listen up. And here's what he has found in his perspective. He stepped back a little bit from all these things that he's been pursuing and he's realized something that's 
vitally important, something that we must realize as well. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Here he says that the best thing a man can do is to eat and drink and to enjoy his work. But wasn't he just saying that all those things were vain? I mean, he's, he's done all those things. He's had the best foods, the best drinks, the best jobs. Why does he now recommend it? How is it that he now can say, you know, that that he finds satisfaction or that we ought to find satisfaction in those things? And really, when he says eating and drinking, he's basically summarizing all of life. It's, It's a poetic way of saying everything that you do, find satisfaction in it. So live your life, be happy, actually enjoy the labors of your hands. I mean, can that really be what he's saying? And what's the catch? And the catch is the rest of the verse. Verse 24, This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Solomon has seen many things, but there's one other thing that he has seen that he hasn't really pointed out yet, and that is this. That living life, all that we do in life, comes from the hand of God. Once we recognize that truth, that changes everything. Once we recognize that everything in life comes from the hand of God, it changes everything. You see, before Solomon is looking through the lens of the natural man. That's why we can relate, because we, uh, we were the natural man. He's just simply reporting things as you see them through a secular worldview. And if that's the only information that we have, then his conclusions are good. I mean, who can argue with a pessimistic and sobering perspective on life and death? What really is the point? He searched for life in all of creation, but then he remembered that there is a creator of all these things. And life took on a different origin, different purpose, different means, different end. And that's why what once looked like something that was vain actually can be something that is like like the, the, the title of this class, right? Something that is meaningful. That has value. That has lasting significance. Because it comes from the hand of an eternal and meaningful God. See, that's the only way that something temporal like our lives can ever have eternal significance is if we put them into the perspective of the eternal and significant God. Once we start recognizing that we live within His universe, rather than He kind of operates kind of tangentially you know, from our universe, he, we live in His universe. We belong to Him. Our meaning is sourced in His meaning, in His essence. Once we understand that there is a sovereign God who has created all things, it changes everything. You see, if there is no sovereign God, if there is not an infinite and eternal God who ordered and ordained the days of our lives, then this universe would operate like 
the secular society argues, which is it's all dumb luck. It's all chance. And in Solomon's initial thesis, his initial premise in chapters 1 and 2 would be correct. Everything in life is meaningless. If there were no God. And that's exactly what the psalm says. Right? Psalm 127.1 Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. But our God is the God of all wisdom and He never does anything in vain. He always has a purpose for what He does. He always has an eternal purpose for what He does. And so our life can and does have meaning. Look at the next verse, verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? Here we have a rhetorical question to back up the claim that He made in verse 24. See that first word, for, pointing back to verse 24. The reason I know this is true, that now life can be of value and enjoyment, is because we find our enjoyment in Him. We can't have enjoyment, true enjoyment without Him. We can't have true joy without God. It's all about perspective. I mean, read Psalm 73 one time. And just think about that in light of, of this. You know, it seems like, you know, what 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 does it matter? You know, I I do good and and I seem to suffer, and the uh, the wicked, they do evil and they seem to prosper. So what really value is it for me to pursue godliness, holiness? Why show up today when I've got my wicked neighbor who's sitting at home? you know, or, or sleeping now or whatever, not worshiping God, I mean, they're going to be much more prosperous in terms of, of finances and maybe even relationships. So what, what really good is it for me to serve God? But, but, but then Psalm 73 turns and it says, but then I, I, I remembered the sanctuary, entered into the sanctuary, and that's when I remembered you know, that it's all about perspective. That there is significance to life. There is none without Him. Verse 26, For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. God is the one who dispenses wisdom and knowledge and joy and He does it to whomever He pleases. But to those who are not given those things, they're left in the dark. They don't know Him and they don't know that they're actually serving His purposes. Did you notice that? That those who don't get those things actually are serving the purposes of those who do. God somehow uses even the wicked to provide for us, to, to give to us. And really, for them their lives are lived without Him and so their days are vanity. They're living a vain life. There's no, there's no meaning apart from... There's no meaning in the world apart from a sovereign God. There's no meaning in the world apart from a sovereign God. Augustine 
commonly taught that if anything is left to fortune, the world is aimlessly whirled about. If anything is left to luck or chance, then, then we really don't have any reason to believe that the world has any order at all or that it will have order one day. But God is the author and providential Lord of all that happens. And since He does nothing in vain, nothing therefore is vain. Everything has meaning. Everything works for His purposes. So meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful because God has appointed it all. And if we fail to recognize this, then we are, we are subjecting ourselves to vanity. Those who fail to see this subject, uh, th- those who fail to see this, subject themselves to vanity. We don't recognize that God is sovereignly in control of all things and working out all things for His purposes. Then life is vain. So here's the theme of the book: the meaning and purpose of life exist only because God has ordained all things that have, that come to pass, and that we are to therefore trust and enjoy and revere such a God. And this is what Solomon's going to argue throughout the rest of the book. This is the common refrain. All right, I've been talking a lot. We want to do a little bit more survey and then application briefly. But do you have any questions so far? Are right, you tracking with Solomon's message here? Seeing what he's trying to do here. It's really a, a I know in like in our Bible reading schedule we tend to read this a chapter at a time, and th- that's probably helpful. But but I think it's also helpful to read just through the entire book, and just see what what he's saying because really uh, here's here's where we get a window into the climax. But the climax really comes in chapter 12 at the very end, and um, let's see if we have time to get there. Well, in chapters three, and chapter three, verses one through eight, Solomon affirms what he's just what he's just stated. He's saying that down to the smallest details of life, God controls it all. And so he says, um, in verse one, there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven. Every delight, desire, pursuit. Everything that happens under heaven, there is a time for it. There's an appointed time. There's a purpose for it. And here he uses uh, a Hebrew um, technique called a mirism, which is um, basically he takes two opposites like birth and death in in verse 2 to signify everything that goes in between. So whether it's birth or death, there is a time for those things. Everything that goes in between all these things that he lists in verse 2 through 8 have meaning. So this section is is Solomon laying out with great detail God's total sovereignty over all that is. That not one drop of rain falls without God's sure command, as John Calvin once said. Then in verses 9 through 15, again, the the question of chapter 1, verse 3 is asked, which is, what profit is there to the worker from that which he toils? What, what do we gain from our labors? And, the, and, and before, the answer was nothing. There is no value. It's all vain. But now, notice his, his answer in verse 10. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. See, he says, now it's something that God has given. Now that I have perspective, I realize that it is not vain. But it's something that's gifted to us from God. 
so that no matter how great Solomon or how small you and me we are, our job has significance because it comes from the hand of God. And what God has ordained, he, He's made beautiful, verse 11. And not only that, but God has put it in our hearts to know that what He in His providence is doing so that, so that it is right for us to ask the question, what is God's plan for my life? while at the same time recognizing that God's not going to reveal every single minute detail of the universe to us. The secret things belong to the Lord. Verse 12, I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It's a gift of God. So, so here he says, see all those things that I was talking about before that seemed vain and worthless? They're a gift from God. And then in verses 14 and 15, I know that everything God does will remain forever. What was he saying before? Everything that happens under the sun, it doesn't last. Generations are passing away. People are dying. It doesn't really matter. Now what is he saying? Everything that God does will remain forever. Everything has value. Isn't that amazing how he flips the whole script from vanity of vanities to meaningfulness of meaningfulness? Everything changes once we have perspective. Well, what does this have to do with guidance and decision making? Because that's really what this series of classes is all about. It has a lot to do with it. We have to understand that nothing happens outside of God's perfect providence. God does have a plan for our lives. And that even in our greatest failures and our worst decisions, we cannot overthrow the plan of God. God's plan will prevail. What did Job say? In, I think it's Job 38 or 40 where he says, who can thwart your plan? No one can thwart the plan of God. Even when we make mistakes, even when we fail big time, we have not thwarted the plan of God. And, and there's this common misconception in our day and in our Christian circles even that, that we have to find God's plan for our lives by looking for signs and still small voices and all, and all this kind of thing. We're told that it's up to us to figure out what God's plan for our life is and then to obey. But what happens if we're, if, we're, um, if we're not up to speed on what the best thing to do is? What happens if we fail? I mean, what happens if we miss God's plan for our life? Or what if we figure it out but we're too stubborn to follow it? Then, then, then we're going to have to live the rest of our life going down the, the alternative road where you could have had a better life and instead we go down this other road. And, and, and this anxiety and fear and stress wells up within us. But what we need to recognize is that we cannot overpower the sovereign plan of God. Our choices don't affect what God has already planned. And, and um, just to confirm this, 
I've listed a number of texts for you to consider. And you know some of these, like Genesis 50, 20. You, know, you meant this for evil, but this was actually part of God's plans. Joseph saying to his brothers, right? God had already planned this so that he could accomplish much good in Israel. So you, you might look at this and see this as something that was evil and certainly take responsibility for it. We're not saying, well, I guess my life doesn't matter. But what we're trying to argue is that what the Scriptures argue, and that is that God is sovereign over all things. So, so consider these texts um, from the smallest decision down to the greatest. God is in control of them all. And God does have a detailed plan for our lives. And our, our lives do have great value, great significance, because they come from a God who is valuable and who is significant. And instead of trying to worry about missing God's plan for our life, we, we ought to trust Him and enjoy what He's guiding us through. So the rest of the class will build on, on this foundation that we have a God who is God indeed. He's not a lesser God. He's not some um, pushover. He is the Almighty God who is near and present and concerned in our life who will never leave us or abandon us. And so the first thing that we need to know in order to understand God's plan God's plan for our life is that you can trust that you will not miss God's plan for your life. He has ordered it and He will bring it to pass. And our job is to trust Him to do that. Alright, any questions? Comments? I know that's a lot, a little bit deeper than we normally go um, philosophically, but theologically but I think it's a helpful foundation for us and something that we need to be reminded of alright let's pray Lord thankful for your sovereign work in our lives thankful that you have ordered all things thankful for the clear examples in scripture where we have seen you orchestrate the events of um, lives of believers and non-believers alike to bring about exactly what you wanted to happen the most prominent example is the death of our Savior, that, that you ordered the life, the lives of pagans, unbelievers, defiant people against you in order to bring about the greatest um, gift, the greatest uh, action that has ever taken place, the death of our Savior, which brought about our uh, union in his death and also in his resurrection. So we praise you that you order all the circumstances of life, help us to trust you along the way. And then help us to see as we continue to study through these things how this applies to us and our individual choices. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.